poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson, and today's guest on this show is author of the Total Poker Manual, Sasha Sutton. Sasha's path, which you're about to learn all about to the world of poker, is unlike pretty much anyone I've met in the poker world. After spending three plus decades as an extremely successful creative and financial writer, she made the fated decision to attend a workshop at the age of 55 where she was introduced to the world of poker. After getting bitten by the wily poker bug initially, a few weeks later she received a cosmic sign from the universe that poker was meant to be a major part of her life when none other than past Chasing Poker Greatness guest, three-time WSOP bracelet winner Matt Matros attended one of her writing workshops. When she found out who he was, she asked him for private coaching, he accepted, and poker has been a major part of Sasha's life ever since. In today's conversation with Sasha Sutton, you're going to learn how amazing of a human being Sasha is. Seriously, she's led a life so full of excitement and adventure that you won't be able to help but leave this conversation inspired. How ignorance is not only just bliss, it can lead you to accomplishing amazing things you otherwise wouldn't have been able to. More great stories about the New York underground poker scene and much, much more. And before you dive into my conversation with Sasha, I just wanted to take a moment to let you know I've recently completed my third cash game course, and it's called Neutralize Flop Leads. With one PDF and a couple of hours of study, you'll never again feel confused when facing a donk bet in a single raised pot. You can check it out at chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. That's chasingpokergreatness.com slash n-u-f-f-l-e. Now, without any further ado, I bring to you author, business builder, and poker player, the brilliant and insightful Sasha Sutton. Sasha, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Uh, I'm excited to get this done. I, I, we, uh, I, we had to push it back all my fault. I take full responsibility. I hate when I have to like tell somebody something and then reschedule it. I feel bad. So like getting it, getting this, um, having this conversation means a lot to me. And uh, I, I apologize that you, you had to wait a couple of extra weeks and just super pumped to have you on now. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's an honor. And I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm so impressed with what you've done with the podcast and you've had so many wonderful, uh, voices and many of my heroes so it's um it's, congratulations thank you I, I appreciate that it's a little crazy how <laughs> it, it's all happened you know it just kind of started out and just kept plugging along and all of a sudden it became like a, a thing which yeah i think that it's very unexpected i guess how much the brand and how much the podcast resonates with people yeah, there's that old formula, which I had in some marketing collateral a long time ago, like our best efforts are 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. So um, 
And I love what you just you just said that you kind of keep your head down and you just sort of look at whatever the effort, the tiny piece of the effort that's right in front of you, and it just grows organically and it takes on a life of its own, which I think has a great is a great metaphor and some lessons in there for how we learn and engage the game. But it's lovely when it happens that way and you don't have expectation. I think the technology now kind of imposes. A set, just, I, I think it has changed consciousness in so many dramatic ways with that big and very many and, and, and all of that um, is more important than kind of just a little few inches right in front of you and your own. Taking off the next box and just take off the next yeah. box, do the next <laughs> thing that, that needs to be done. Yeah. Uh, I think that I attribute the success of Chasing Poker Greatness and my own poker career to mostly ignorance as it related to how hard it would be. If I knew how hard everything was before I started, I probably never would have tried to do it. Um, it just, you're like, Oh yeah, this is a fun thing. And you're, you're just pure, purely ignorant about how to make it work. And eventually you just keep solving problems. And then one day you kind of like look behind and you're like, Oh my gosh, like I, I could never have imagined that I would invest this many hours into Mm. such an endeavor. Um, somebody once said you have to have an obsessive gambling demon. Do you have it have to have an obsessive gamble gamble demon period early in your poker life to kind of attach you to the process, which I certainly had. And I've talked to other players who've had that too. I've grown past that, but I think what you're describing, you know, I, I love what you're saying. I haven't quite heard it ex- expressed that way, but yeah, I think you, you, you don't really know what, it's almost like an a, the alien movie sort of metaphor around like you have this creature growing inside you <laughs> and it takes over your being. But in poker, it's a pleasant overtaking over time. Hopefully. I feel I feel like any success that I've had in my life is just me magooing it around and mm-hmm. like just stump bumbling into some random success just through pure immersion. <laughs> and really, I, I guess for the listener, loving what you do is the number one component of the recipe. These conversations fire me up. I love doing them. And if I didn't love doing them, I wouldn't have stuck with it. And the same is with poker. I loved playing. I was immersed. It was exciting. And because I loved it, it didn't matter the next thing I had to tick off. I was going to tick it off. Like I was just going to keep progressing every single day. And, you know, you you get pushed down, you get back up. Like you're measured in how many times you get, get back up. Not, uh how many times you fall. So I think that loving something is really the first component. You know, if anybody out there is listening that like wants to play poker, they're halfway interested because they think they can make a lot of money doing it. That's not a recipe for poker success. That's not enough to not enough to be resilient, to get through the bad days because it's tough <laughs> and there are lots of bad days. Mm-hmm. That's true. And that's very true. Sasha, typically I start out this show by asking my guests their story, how they found poker. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll ask you how old you are so we can get a timeline of like when all this goes down through the years. Sure. Um, I'm 65, actually 64. I'll be 65 next month. So <clears throat> I have a pretty weird story in terms of poker origin. I collect everybody's poker origin stories. Um, I collect them. I've collect, I've just like have tens and tens of them in my brain because I'm extremely competitive because everybody else got, got to start playing chess when they were seven and poker when they were 12 and this and that and the other. But 
when I was 55, I was living in New York City, and, and this part of my story, I've actually told it a number of times, and it always just, I try to tell it in a way that's not goofy, but it definitely has some fairy dust sprinkled on it. And poker was all over my family as a child. I grew up in LA, I had a sprawling family, and everybody played cards and all those beautiful family narratives like we all, many of us have. Um, it was never my life uh, in my 20s. Um, did you love playing the games? Did you love cards? Did it resonate with you as a kid? No, I mean, no, I, you know, I remember like I had a crazy eights and a gin rummy life with my father, right? Like, but it wasn't, mm. although when I was 20, I was still living in LA and I was going to Vegas a lot and playing a lot of 21. And I could sit at a 21 table for like 14 hours in that period. Again, it wasn't like I was connecting those dots at all. And then uh, 55 minus 20, whatever that is, 32 years, 30, 35, 35 years yeah. went by. <laughs> and I went to a, co a co corporate event in New York City. There was a woman who had a business model. I actually recently connected with another brand that is what, a beautiful. Can we can we go back a little bit? What sure. were you doing? What, what were you doing in life? What was your profession? What oh. were you consumed with leading up yeah. to that? I was, uh, I've been a writer for almost 30 years. So, um, I actually, I was in, uh, Los Angeles, um, working as a literary agent in my twenties. I got married when I was 25 and then, uh, I was divorced when I was around 30 and, um, uh, not happy with my LA life for a number of reasons. And I had a friend in New York city and I, um, I, I was flying back and forth and I kind of loved the vibe in New York and I was pretty unhappy in LA. And um, I didn't even know that my family, my grandmother was born on the Lower East Side in 1903. I had origin in New York. No one ever told me this. So I, I kind of on, I do, I've had a really high variance life um, for 30, 40 years. I really have. And I just like left LA and moved to New York City. <laughs> um, what were you doing in New York? Well, I didn't have much of a plan. I just wanted, I loved the city and I felt like it was where I needed to be. And um, um, I started slow and I had odd jobs and um, I ended up uh, working for a publishing company and doing sort of writerly connected things. And I was a freelance journalist and uh, just surviving, you know, kind of, it, it's New York. So you, you kind of have a lot of those balls in the air. Um, and then I, um, let's see, um, that was, yeah. And then, um, well, you're starting to build your life, right? You're building your life yeah, in New York away from it, LA. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, it's like, oh, right. You know, uh, uh, so, um, yeah. And it was definitely, um, I was, I was sort of kind of organizing my energy around my writing career, my, my creative energy. And, um, I then took a job uh, at a big company. I got a, I got a pretty, I got a very plum writing job at a big company in New York City. And then I was there. And then about somehow 12 or 13 years went by. And um, I, you know, I was working, I was in my early 40s and it was not, I was unhappy. I was, I'm just very entrepreneurial and I'm very like, rebellious and I don't like working for other people. So I left that job and I wanted to go out on my own. And I started, um, I started um, a practice as a writer, which became a marketing practice and a writing practice in financial services, which I then honed over many years. 
Um, and that was um, really interesting and fascinating. And that financial link, in which I think I ended up with my poker life later on, um, I never had any formal training in the market. But the minute I kind of found financial services in a marketing and a writing context like that, that was a huge click for me. It literally just like a tile that fell into place. And then I, I had a very, I had a thriving practice and that supported me through, through kind of, through, I've, I've, I'm still, it's still a piece of my life. And I've, I've, I've led this um, enterprise for 22 years. It allowed me to go to graduate school. I got my master's in creative writing from New York University when I was 50. So my life just like whatever you do at 25, I'm going to do like 25 years later. <laughs> and that's just been my whole life. And I'm kind of used to that now. So God willing, I'm like, please let me live to 93 because I need like more time. You know, everything is just pushed back. I, I think um, that's, uh, that's representative of a, of a life well lived when you need more time to pursue the things that you're passionate about and you're constantly pursuing your passions. And I can kind of see the pieces of poker. They're, they're kind of coming into place where it's like you, you want this autonomy in your career. You want to do your own thing. You want to be your own person. You find financial services. Uh, obviously, like this ties directly into poker and pursuing poker or even looking at it and, and it being a fascinating thing filled with people who are your people, right? Like these are effectively people who are your mirrors, these are risk takers and risk ratio people. And uh, one of my partners uh, is also, he, he has a very successful content marketing agency. And then I'm, uh, he's a very successful trader. And then I've also, as part of my corporate, I call it my corporate life. So I have a, a, a poker life and I have a writing life and I, and I have a corporate life. So those are my three, the three balls I've had in the air for the last 20 years. My partner is a very successful options trader. And I've edited um, one of the most successful options magazines in the country for the last nine years. So, you know, poker and the stock market are not, I mean, they're just like Siamese twins, right? I actually read trading books to get better at the game. That's really what I love to read in addition to the poker books I read. But um, let's, let's segue to the poker. Now that we're seeing these pieces fall into place, you're 55 years old. And then something happens. Something right? happens. Something happens. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. A narrative inflection point, as we say in novel writing, uh, rising action. Yeah. There, in my corporate life, there was a woman in New York who had a brand where she was teaching women the principles of poker in order to be more successful in their corporate lives. This is a business model now that's been replicated. And I just found another brand that's doing that as well at a really high level. And their goal is to train a million women, literally a million women, how to play the game. So Is I, that poker I, power? It is poker power, yeah. So um, I went to this corporate event innocently, and I almost didn't go. Like, I was on the train. It was cold. I was like, you know, F this. Like, what the hell is it? I don't you can say the F word. If oh, you okay, want. okay. That's I'm like an, like an average, <laughs> I swear, like a sailor. So. <laughs> um yeah, I'm like, fuck this. Like, I don't fucking want to go to this thing. Like, what am I doing? I just want to go home. And so I went. It was this beautiful, midtown, lavish place for a corporate luncheon. This woman taught like 80 women how to play poker in two hours. And she had these huge cards. She's holding them up, you know, in front of the room. And then we played. And she taught us for like an hour. And then we like played a little tournament or whatever for like an hour. And something just unleashed in me. Like I had been what playing was it? poker. Well, I think you know, I think 
I think what's also important to sort of sprinkle onto this narrative is how women how women are socialized into competition and aggression and achievement and all of that stuff. And even though I'm not like I didn't come of age in the 40s or 50s, I came of age in the 60s and the 70s and women are still finding their place. Um, you know, Vanessa Selbs, whom I know and I played at some charity things with in New York City, like she she's written about these ideas of how women are socialized into these things that make you successful in poker. So when I played that day, that game that when I played poker that day, what unleashed in me what I felt like a, a kind of competitive monster in the best sense, capital C, capital M. And I remember feeling like so mad that this stupid woman, like, you know, like she like won the little stupid trophy and like, I hated her shoes. And, you know, <laughs> I was just like so agitated. And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, what are these feelings? Right. And then a few months goes by and this is where the fairy dust stuff gets weirder. Um, and I was literally sitting at my desk and it was snowing and it was February and I was working late at night. And then I just said to myself, like, I heard a voice and it was like, you were really happy playing poker. Why don't you do some more of that? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I found the woman who taught me. She was teaching classes in New York. Like nobody learns poker this way. Nobody goes to a class. It's so bizarre. So I went and took three weeks of classes from her. And then a bunch of us broke off from that. It was all women, uh, mostly women, it's like 98% women. And a bunch of us broke off. And then I, I had a group, community of gals in New York in the Upper East Side. And we were playing like low stakes home game buying, you know, $20 buying attorneys or whatever. That was the beginning. That was the beginning. And it was just, and then um, I was, but, but Brad, what was like very significant for me was like, I do feel like, I don't know, this all, this just sounds really goofy too, that we just kind of know, we so know so much about our lives and in on a more intuitive level and a less than conscious level. And I just kind of felt from the very, very beginning that this was something that was going to be forever for me. Like, it's going to be my, the rest of my life. And I was very, like, cocky and I was very arrogant. I was a fetus. I was a poker fetus. And I felt like, yeah, I know. You know, and I'd be like, oh, no, you should be. Have that. you felt that way about other things in your life that you encounter no. something and you're like, this is a thing I'm going to just do forever? That's a great question. Um I don't know. Not, Not even writing? Writing is just, writing is just oxygen <laughs> for me. It's just, I, yeah. I found my writing life late. Like, I went to college late. Of course I did. I went, I graduated college at 28 and found my writing life there. And then that just, so writing for me was, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I feel, I'd have to think about that. It's a good question. But, but it did feel like, this what is, is that feel? Can you describe that feeling of like just encountering something in the world that grabs you in such a way that you mm -hmm. want to do it forever? And there's not even there's no doubt in your mind. There's a piece of this, I think, that's a mysterious part of our process as human, our life journey, our life process as human beings. I hate the word process, but our life decisions, I just how I don't I don't know. I mean, I will say there was one piece of it that got, that made it much realer, which is that this is a little bit more the fairy dust. Um, I guess a year after I learned the game or something, I don't, I'd have to look at the timeline, a year or two, a year maybe, not much more than that. 
and I was playing these home games. And then uh, I also found like a pub league in New York City, right? And these pub leagues are gorgeous training grounds for, and they're national. And they're, the pr presence of women in these games is, is proportionally very, very high, very high. And they're a great place to learn. It's all points. There's no money involved in their tournament style, et cetera. I was playing for points in a pub league and feeling like that was a very serious thing for me. Like I was dressing for my pub league games as I was going to the World Series, right? Mm -hmm. um, but through my at that in that period, through my writing life, I was uh, also leading creative writing workshops through the New York Writers Coalition. And they called me one day and they said, "You're uh, you're going to train somebody next week, and they're going to come to your workshop, and you're going to train them to be a facilitator." Another leader. I go, great. The person who showed up was Matt Matros, um, who's, you know, now he has three bracelets and, you know, he's just a brilliant player. I had no idea who he was. And he didn't reveal his poker life to me at all. He came as a writer because he's also a novelist and a mm -hmm. creative writer. So that day, the weirder part of that day, and I had never done a, a writing prompt involving poker or cards. That day I brought a deck of cards to the the workshop as a writing prompt and Matt was in the room. It was all just strange. And then I still didn't know who he was. And then a week later, one of the writers said to me, oh, he was really a nice fellow. You know, he's a poker player. I'm like, are you kidding me? I came home. I looked him up. I called him and I was like, or I wrote to him. I was like, why the hell didn't you tell me who you were? You know, and then meeting Matt and then I asked him if he would coach me. And I was, again, like playing in a public basically, right? And um, meeting him, and Matt was like a writer with a bank account, right? So he modeled something very specific for me. And that was another inflection point that helped me to sort of really deepen my attachment to the game. And that, at that point, I realized, like I said, that's when I really knew, like, this is it. Yeah, this, this is, is it. it. And Matt is still your coach today, right? This is uh, almost 10 years He's not actually. Oh, he's not. He yeah. he was your first coach. It was my I know, first coach. I know you work with Tommy. He was my first coach. Ed Miller was my second coach, and I've worked with Tommy Angelo for the last three years. And he's Tommy is still my coach. So I've been very blessed to have three world class coaches in a very very short time. Tommy's and the then, man. I, I I would just pay Tommy to hang out with him just to. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's that's kind of the trick of this podcast, right? Like he comes and hangs out with me for free for a couple of hours and I would have paid him and don't tell him that. But like that's that's <laughs> the trick of podcasting, yeah. right? Like I would pay money to hang out with you, but you come on and you do it for free and we both have fun. And so that's a win win. Um, you had a gorgeous your last chat with him was gorgeous, by the way. I really, really enjoyed it. And yes, he is a, a just a phenomenal person and a great coach that that conversation went to some places that i did, <laughs> did not expect it to go i, know, I will I tell know you that, that. Uh, no, I, yeah i i that if you missed that conversation highly suggest that if you're listening to this right now go back and listen to tommy angelo round two um i was gonna say i used to run a program called the elite program and mm -hmm. in it it was a volume program. It's since canceled. But basically, the purpose of it was professional poker players. It was mindset and volume. Like, you, we're going to find out what you're made of. We're going to, you're going to push yourself. You're going to go to bed at night with the knowledge that you did as best as that you could in this day as it related to your poker career. And 
they had multiple blocks that they were supposed to spend time on every day, physical, mental, spiritual. The spiritual block is the one that I want to talk about because what I believe is that our consciousness, our awareness, um, people call it a spirit, right? It's spirituality. It's the thing that makes us human. It's the thing that gives us personality and makes us who we are. Uh, the spiritual block was the one block of the day that my guys had the most problem with, which is funny because the description of the spiritual block is do something that resonates with your spirit. <laughs> do something that you enjoy doing, that makes you happy, gives you fulfillment, that gets you excited, right? Like whatever it is, it could be riding your bike. It could be walking your dog. It could be whatever just gets you going. And, you know, when you say that like something happened and it was you loved poker and you knew it was going to be a thing. To me, that's just recognition that your spirit understood and knew that like, this is a thing I love dearly and I'm going to hold on to it. And mm -hmm. recognizing that just for the listener too, recognizing when your spirit wants to do something, when it gets fulfillment and joy out of an activity, being in touch with yourself and giving yourself permission to pursue that thing is so powerful in life. Um, there's no reason to sit around and pursue things that don't make us feel that way. Whenever your spirit celebrates, pursue that and only good things can happen uh, as far as I'm concerned. I completely agree. I mean, I think that, um, I've been thinking a lot about this actually in the last few days, um, kind of who has financial, uh, privilege and class privilege in order to the notion of pursuing one's bliss or pursuing one's joy or finding joyousness in life. Um, and uh, I've just been pondering it. And I think it is connected to uh, especially having a poker life and why for, I think it's harder for women to enter the game in terms of financial resources, et cetera. And those are complicated. That's a complicated analysis, but I, I love what you're saying. Very, very yeah. But, um, but I, I think uh, there, I, I, I mean, I think it's part of the very, very basic core human condition in terms of how we find meaning, meaning in human life. I think human consciousness is a very, very tricky affair. I really do. And um, I think that I have a friend uh, in Vegas who's in his 40s and, you know, wants to try to figure out what he wants to be when he grows up. And I can tell that he just won't. He wants to do, he just wants to jump and kind of take some risk. And I said, listen, I've lived a really high variance life for 30 years and I've never regretted any of that. Um, but I, I support, you know, I support how you're describing sort of orbiting closer to oneself and how to, and how one takes those chances. I think it's really almost temperament. You know, I'm sure we both know a lot of folks who can't take the leap and that's not a judgment. It's simply people are, wired to do that or not yeah we're wired most people are wired to stay in what they understand and what they know and moving out of that is a very scary thing you know there's cognitive bias the ambiguity effect that like if you don't know the result of what you're doing you're less likely to do that thing you're more likely to do the safe thing that you ha have experience in and that you've done over and over and over again um and yeah human consciousness is just a crazy thing that like the only reason we know it's a thing is because we have it, right? Nice. Like th that's that's the only reason we know that it exists is exactly. because we yeah. have it. Um, but let's go back to your poker journey. So you find Matt, you're you find Matt, and then what happens? Because obviously 
you, you're living a, a successful life. You have a great career and you're in New York today. You're in Vegas. And so there's a transition that happens <laughs> at some point, right yeah. over, over these next few years. So tell me about your immersion into poker. Well, you know, Matt first trained me as a tournament player. And again, even though uh, I just, he, I just was very, he, he really, I'm very grateful for his commitment to me. Cause I said to him, listen, do you, do you, will you coach somebody at my level? Cause like it was like three levels up just to get to absolute beginner in some sense. But he, you know, he's grounded me in just a solid math foundation to the game and just, just really was very patient. And I, I think I was a good student and I, I was very, he, I think he could see that. So I was playing, he was coaching me and I was playing um, tournaments in the pub league and then in home games in New York. And then kind of by accident one night, I found one of the, one of the under, one of the, one of the, there was like a low stakes cash tournament thing in a warehouse in Brooklyn. <laughs> and, uh, and then behind me was this cash game. I'm like, huh. So I actually, I, and then I sat down that night to play cash. And I'm like, what's this kind of thing, right? And I won a hundred bucks or whatever it was at a one-two game. And um, that was it. Okay. That was like, then cat, the cash world took over my brain in New York City. And for some reason, uh, and I, and honestly, Brad, I've checked in with myself a number of times about this. Like, I'm not sure what it was about the cash structure or uh, why, you know, I don't know, just when I encountered the cash structure, I abandoned tournament play very, very quickly, and I've never looked back. I, ha I really have nothing, I have, nothing, I have an immense admiration for great tournament players, and I think that part of the game has gotten even harder. Um, but once I found cash, I loved the structure, and I loved the immediacy, I love it, and I loved uh, the dollar-per-dollar dollar thing. So that, that then that took me in a journey of like a more, and then shortly after, I guess maybe six months I don't, I forget the timeline, but in the next year, I met Ed Miller um, and worked with him. I edited the course, which is his ninth book, and then we worked together for a year after that. And then I had a beautiful life in underground poker in New York City for several years. And that was like adventurous and magical and sometimes dangerous. And um, that was a whole, that was the next phase of my life. And so tell I me dangerous. My... You can't say dangerous and just leave <laughs> well, it at I mean, that. Like, what's, like, what's a dangerous situation in these, these New York private games? Um, I would say, you know, you had, I forget the name of your guest that you had on recently who also were, was playing high stakes in New York city. I was playing low stakes in New York city, but you know, I was careful I don't mean like life-threatening dangerous, but I did. I've written about this um, a lot. I've, I've been blogging for uh, Wretched Poker and for Poker News for, for many years and was have been working on a memoir about my poker life. Um, but uh, there's a kind of a, a little Raymond Chandler part of my brain that I kind of, you knock on those doors, right? Uh, and you kind of don't know what you're going to expect. And it was a kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, I took some chances there. I never put, I never put my life at risk, but, you know, I went to a couple of edgy spots that, um, I was never in a raid and raids didn't happen every day, but, um, I played regularly in a spot that moved around a lot because they got raided a lot and they were sloppy in how they were running their game. And then I went to one spot that, you know, I went to one spot that was, 
kind of the edgiest I felt was the edgiest, like no, none of the folks running that game were smiling. I, I came in through a small vestibule off of Fifth Avenue. They had to absolutely make sure they, who I, I said like was who, you know, all that. I was allowed to go upstairs. They're often kind of black curtains you had to sort of curtains you had to sort of pass through. And there may have been some other activity going on there, having nothing to do with <laughs> poker. That, um, there know, may have, there, there may or may been. not and have I, been. As, as it got explained to me, and, and, and when people would, and I would, I've, I've done interviews, and then folks would write to me or call me if they were traveling to New York City, because I loved putting people in safe games. And then it became, I became like the perfect, I became the perfect, uh, like, I, I looked for the value. I looked for the perfect rake. Like I became this aggressive, let me just say like self-hating Jewish, like the perfect Jewish bargain finder, right? Um, like that's what I did. And I found the safe games with the perfect rate, the excellent rakes and all that. And I played in some wild games with like uh, now 10% max 40 kinds of rakes and like five, five straddle games and stuff like that. Um, so so those were a couple of edgy spots that uh, that had been raided. I was never in a raid, but uh, I there. And and as I it was explained to me that um, the authorities in New York City were I, I, there was an operation in one of the boroughs that was massive, and it was stupid to have a massive operation. Any of the twenty four hour operations with multiple tables and a lot of activity like that is a lot of cash coming through. And, and that supposedly there was an undercover cop that went, was going to that game. That raid was headlines in New York City and, you know, felony charges and this and that and the other. The cops didn't like, I remember Bill Locke some years ago was sort of amazed that the poker scene in New York had changed so much that all the underground games were listed on Meetup and they still are. Like if you go to Meetup right now, you'll see where they all are. I don't think that the authorities really give a damn about the one or two tables. Um, it's the 24 hour joints with anywhere from like, you know, four to 20 tables, um, with massive rates and stuff like that. that yeah. That, that, that's a card room. Um, that's basically... a card room. And it's also if there's an overlay of other activity that is, uh, you know, not in keeping with poker, not in keeping with lawful behavior, they're going to pay attention to that as well. I mean, but also, what what underground poker in New York goes not just the nineties and the Mayfair and that gorgeous, gorgeous history there, and then the next period that your other guest had spoken about, and then me coming after that, but even like going back thirty or forty or fifty years, there were social clubs, for example, all all over the Lower East Side, where this was um uh 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 where I lived for thirty years and it was a Spanish and black and Jewish and Dominican, Puerto Rican neighborhood and ghetto, really, in the most beautiful sense of that word, a shtetl, to use the Jewish word. And there were social clubs that you went up a tiny little elevator and the door opened and there was poker games going on and judges there and cops there playing, right? So the social club culture that you don't have access to that information unless which I, unless you know someone who's in their 60s in the Lower East Side, which I do, and they shared that narrative with me. And, and I'm sure that went on in a lot of cities and that even proceeds. And that was just a very deep, hidden, deep in the culture of the Lower East Side and I'm sure other parts of New York as well. And all around the country, most yeah. likely. Uh, yeah. Funny enough, the, the first home game that I ever played in, I 
found it after doing a Yahoo search. That was <laughs> it was listed listed online. That was like the first probably 2004, 2005. The first home game I found was just like a, a random search home game in Chattanooga and something popped up. And then all of a sudden I was automatically plugged into the Chattanooga home game scene. I, I've never been a part of a raid either. I've never I got very lucky and narrowly avoided one one time. And I, I guess all things are in perspective, right? I, I think the only time I've ever felt uncomfortable in a home game uh, was they, they ran a game where there was like 10 tables, maybe 15. It was at a country club. It was basically a card room, really. Um, and it was just wall to wall with cars. And the back of the parking lot had no lights. So like it was just completely dark. And at the end of the night, like I was always playing the highest stakes games that were running and I'm a cash game player. Like I, I don't really care about the tournaments. You know, the tournaments drew a lot of people in, but like I would show up a few hours after the tournament started when the cash game started amping up and then I would play all night. But so I would park like in the dark portion of the parking lot. It would be like pitch black dark. And I remember playing the big stakes games and like, seeing the people look at me like as I'm cashing out and getting this money. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I'm not going to walk in that dark parking lot by myself. Like I would pay a dealer to like drive my car around and then be like super paranoid looking in my rear view mirror. It, it probably didn't help anything that like one of my good friends, we were eating in there one time and he just said, wow, this would be a great spot to rob. You just pull up with an unmarked van, you fire a shotgun shell into the ceiling and you probably get a hundred K and I'm like, fuck, thank you. Thank you for that uh, imagery there. Now I'm <laughs> even more terrified of something happening. But by and large, that was the only time that I ever felt really unsafe, I guess, in, in a home game where basically I was getting cashed out in front of everybody and people knew that I had a large amount of money on me right. and it was like four in the morning and yeah, like anything can happen, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally hear you about that. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it's a thing, you know. I mean, I, I ran into a tournament player a couple months ago here and he was telling me like once at the Rio during WSOP, you know, he was, he felt like he was followed up in, you know, in the elevator and was, he was being followed and he was about to be robbed and he hated the Rio for that. Like, why are you playing me in the hotel? Yeah. <laughs> it's like somebody just <laughs> was like following a tournament player with a high profile tournament player. It's just yeah. Like, um, the the inverse for me of what you're describing in terms of that terror, um, what I, I came to love in my underground poker life, the simplest thing was that um, I had jackets and clothing that always had a lot of zippered pockets, which maybe a lot of poker cash players have that. Um, but I remember one of the first times I came home in the summer and I was playing in, on Lexington in the, in the late 30s, um, like around that was where the location was and I had a really great night and it was very new for me and as a woman in the game and you talk about just the attraction and the kind of being attracted to something and I mean this becomes sort of more psychological and spiritual but there was something for me to get around financial success in a competitive context well to my family history and a lot of other very complicated things there but when I first started playing like, and I actually talked to another female grinder recently and she said something similar, but if I won and I drag pots, like I, it still happens to me now occasionally. If you're looking at me, if you're really staring at my body, you're going to see like my back goes into like temporary spasm or my handshake. 
so when I'm just taking, pulling the money toward me, my hand would shake. So there's this kind of feeling of just amazingness of like, this is mine and I did this and I'm successful at this and I get to have this. And it was just kind of beautiful feeling. So I'd stuff my pockets and I, one night in my er, an early victory, I was walking down Park Avenue and it was the New York summer and that, I hate the feel, I hate it. I don't ever want to go back to it now, but that, that oppressive, humid, humid, like exhausting thing. But I was walking down park and I was like covered in money, body. <laughs> and um, just felt it was like the most joyous feeling in the world of just, and it was all kind of hidden. It was all just hidden. And nobody in a thousand years would have thought, oh, there's that woman walking down park with her pockets full of money kind of thing. Yeah. I, that so, was the inverse of what you're saying about the terror. <laughs> yeah. And that has happened to me many times where like I fly to commerce and when I play to commerce, I wouldn't cash out like the pink chips. I would just take them home with me. And so like <laughs> I would just fly and I, I'm like, oh, like I've got, you know, $75,000 in my backpack, like just on a flight and like nobody knows. And it's just this hilarious thing where it's, yeah, you're like, it, it, it's kind of a cool feeling where you're obviously kind of paranoid about your backpack at that point, but um, you're just kind of under the radar and nobody really knows and nobody cares. And I think it's completely unique. I mean, in what other profession are you trapped, except unless you're a drug dealer? Drug dealer. Okay, That's yeah. the one. <laughs> that was the immediate one. <laughs> There's only two professions where you're kind of running around with a lot of money, you know, in your backpack or whatever. I mean, yeah. it's, quite, it's quite unique, actually. I never thought about it, but you're right. Only only somebody that is selling drugs or poker players or <laughs> really have a ton of cash on them or have the need to carry a ton of cash um on and, are ca- and a casual and are casual about it yeah it's, just like whatever it's like, yeah it's just a normal business you know it's, a, it's yeah you, it's just a, you miss you miss this whole part of poker but like you know coming up it was like a bunch of sub 25 year old people with immature brains and just like you go out to eat and it, you pull out just <laughs> you pull out a roll of money you just have like a bunch of hundreds in your pocket and you're like okay like here you go and everybody like everybody that you associate with who's in poker all has just like wads of cash and they're on their person all the time. Um, you don't even really think about it at, at some point. Right. I have to say that's been part of the Vegas experience for me because it's, to me, it's, uh, I grew up in Los Angeles and I worked in the film business and that's a company town. And for me, Vegas is a company town in terms of money not just in terms of poker, but it's a vague, it's a company town and the level of ambition here is unbelievable. Like it rivals New York or even surpasses it. But, um, but that has been part of my acculturation here. And just, I have a friend who's a brilliant, uh, he works, he has a great job in the poker ecosystem, but he also is a brilliant blackjack player. And, you know, um, I mean, brilliant, not a card counter at all. He's just a natural in the game. And so the other night I ran into him at a casino and he just, he said, yeah, I don't know. I had a, I don't know. I played for an hour or two. And then he like reaches into his pocket and he like, he goes, I don't know. I think I made like $14,000 or something. And he just like, <laughs> no, I loved it. He just like looked at this. It would be like me saying to you, oh, look, I, I found this silver dollar on it. You know, he's like, yeah, he's counting the chips in his hands. Like, yeah, I think I, yeah, it's like 14,000. It was a pretty good. And he puts it back in his pocket. But I love that. Oh my God. It's just like so. I told Tommy the story and he was like, yeah, it's right. It's, I mean, <laughs> the whole money thing. You're just like, money i i thought i was balling at like 23 years old or 22 when i 
the Razer just came out, like the Motorola Razer. It was like the <laughs> the phone of choice for all the cool kids. And like I went to a phone booth and they ran my credit and I had no credit uh, because I'm a poker player. <laughs> I've been playing poker for four years. Like um, they're like, uh, I'm sorry, you know, it, it's a $500 deposit and that's what we need. And I was like, oh, and I just like hand them $500 bills and they're like, nobody's ever paid the deposit before <laughs> i was like oh well <laughs> i get it back right like i get credit they're like yeah you, you get it credited eventually i was like okay yeah just give me the phone i want the phone um but yeah that uh, that's just kind of the the poker lifestyle how it was back then yes i i i don't yeah i'm i, I think what you're describing is kind of a little bit eternal i have a feeling first it just it's yeah i think you could find those moments now especially oh for sure there's kids that yeah it it just they're walking around with god only knows how much money and whatever something costs something they're like yeah here you go and you're like holy shit did you just did you just pay a thousand dollars for a meal yeah whatever let's go (laughs) let's move on with life it's not even a big deal right i think that's the that's the funny part is like they these things happen and it's not even like a thing it's just like a thing that happens and then you move on and don't even talk about it Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It's just part. It, it's a lifestyle question. Yeah. For sure. Um. Let's go back to to your story. See, I this is what I do. I, I go. I take us off in these tangents and no, pull away. not at all. No, 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 not tangents. It's it's lovely what things you're saying. So. Um. So how the heck did you get to Vegas? Like oh. from New York. <laughs> let's talk about that. Okay. Um. I I just uh, I don't want to forget to tell you about my high stakes thing. Uh, I'll tell you that in a minute. So I was playing in New York, obviously, and uh, in some really beautiful environments. And Tommy said something very important to me. Um, He said, you're not in a professional environment underground. And um, hold on a second, because you have a perfect like you're you're a high powered professional, right? Is it necessary to be in a professional environment in poker for you? Tommy knew that I, what happened was I was in New York and I knew that I couldn't, uh, if I wanted to have, I started to fantasize about, I was thinking, oh, I can spend six months in Vegas. I can, um, that was started to be this fantasy. And I started to say it out loud and he started to listen to me and he was coaching me. And he said, the notion of this opinion and everybody finds their path. But um, if one has professional aspiration in poker on the cash side, I mean, people don't move to Vegas, very successful tournament players, Matt numbers among them, um, many others don't move here. Um, I don't think that one can really evolve in a professional uh, track with outside of a casino city. And that's my opinion. And that's what I believe. And that's what I would tell anybody. And that's what I would tell women, especially because when you're, I have a couple of friends who play in New York who are absolutely brilliant players and they can't get out from under a terrible dynamic, which is rec players who are not studying the game and who are coming to a game after work and who maybe have money and maybe don't. And they're just calling stations. And then, you know, he, he's tilting all the time and he's judging himself by that environment. And I said to him, you are so good and you need to get the fuck out of New York and get, get me to a casino city and have a real poker life. And that's an idea that Tommy introduced into my life, this notion of professional context 
Um, and I wish that I had known that earlier and I was exhausted and it was, I was tired of the cold and I was coming to Vegas. I had come three or four times and I, I grew up in LA and I missed the desert and I missed the sun and I really kind of missed the West. And that also exploded in me, that feeling exploded in me. And then I took a trip to Vegas by myself without Tommy being here and without anybody being here for me to rely on. I came by myself and I looked for us to live and I on the city and I was like, can I like, there's no there there. There's no there in Vegas. There's no city here, right? I went from the, the densest city on earth to the not densest city on earth. <laughs> and I was very nervous. Like there's everything, there's no there here, here. There's no here, here. There's kind of not, except that what's here, here for me, like when I walk into a casino, every cell of my being vibrates. Isn't it funny how that happens? I <laughs> Here's how I work as a human being. And I will say sometimes whenever I'm in a mood that I don't like playing live poker. I'll, I'll say like, ah, I don't really, I don't like playing live poker. I don't know. It's very slow. I prefer online. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like I convince myself of that. But when I go to a casino, something changes, something lights up and it feels like this is home for me. It feels like mm -hmm. this is my place. Like I think that whenever I enter a poker room, I'm the most comfortable out of all the places that I enter in my life. It's like this place is my comfort zone and I just love it. Like I, I really do. I get energy when I walk into a poker room because I'm like, this, I, I don't know if it's like these are my people or if it's like this is where I'm an expert and world class and this is how I apply my trade and like this is built for me um, to come play. But whatever it is, it always hits me very hard whenever I enter a casino, especially if I haven't been in one for a while where like – yeah, I feel the cool air on my face. I smell mm -hmm. the smells and I, I'm like, yeah, this this is my comfort zone. This is my place. Right. That question of comfort, what you just said, I think is urgently urgently important in human in our human in our consciousness in our life. And you're describing tribe at a very deep level. I think the tribe walk in a poker room, it's your community. It's an environment that you completely understand and you completely sort of just moving through the water you're just completely yourself yeah that's a thing too that I, i've been reflecting on maybe i'm just getting older and <laughs> reflecting on why things are the way that they are mm -hmm. but having these kind of conversations and these connections with like podcast guests and they always leave me feeling energized and just full mm -hmm. of life and i'm like I need to go run a marathon or something because I've got so much energy in me. I need to get it out. And lately I've been coming to the conclusion that it's because, you know, when I started in 2004, there wasn't really a tribe. Like it was hard to find a tribe. It was hard to find my people. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My people didn't really exist. And then I, I played online for many years after playing live. And what I'm realizing is like with building a community having these interactions is like, you're my people, right, Sasha? Like all of my guests, these are my people. Like these are people who share my interests, share my passion, share my pursuit, are constructed like me. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, 
I didn't have many people in my life that were like that. And so now connecting with people that I see myself in is just like, it's the coolest thing. It's, it's hard to even put into words how awesome it feels. Right. I mean, you're describing a sense of belonging. Right. Very, very eloquently. Yeah. And that's a powerful feeling too. I have a pretty, um, I've been, in, I've been shaped. I, I think I have a more relative to this notion of community and tribe and compassion and honoring which is a funny word in some sense, but I have a, I think I have a more progressive attitude toward, toward the game than many. I've been shaped by Brown's book, The Poker Face of Wall Street and the Zen of, Zen, Zen and the Art of Poker, taught me certainly by a million percent, um, that I, I feel that sense of community in every game and that doesn't erase aggression and, um, wanting to win and needing to win and enacting uh, strategies that allow me to be profitable. But I'm interested in uh, not simply for myself, like walking into that room and taking that feeling and that sensation right into the dynamic of the game. So there are moments where there's an old Zen saying, like, broken people make bad enemies. Um, there are moments where I haven't, like, really gone like really destroyed someone or there's times when I've been sitting next to kind of absolute beginners and I help them, right? I'm just interested in that, the connective tissue of what we're doing that isn't, that doesn't stop for me, like walking in, I totally relate to what you're saying, like walking into a poker room and feeling that energy. And I like to take that energy into the game. If I have occasionally fought with people in New York City, I occasionally lost my temper. Like I really... I hate when I do that and I try never to do it, but I did once or twice or three times. And I always like, I couldn't stand the tension. I couldn't stand not being respectful to someone, even for like three seconds. And I always apologize. And maybe that's a gender thing, but what you're saying that I just think we're like one organism at a, in a session. I, I want the respect for coming toward me and I want to give other players that respect. So when I was immature as 21, 22-year-old me, I have certainly acted, said, and done very regrettable things at the poker table. I've gone after people for no reason um, other than yeah. we're battling. And and I think that you, know, you look back on this younger self that's quick to anger and quick to words and confrontation, and you're like – God, that fills me with so much shame looking back mm. on it. Like, why am I, why am I going after this person that did literally nothing to me? Like, did it other than like, we're battling at the poker table. Right. And I think that that to me is, uh, that causes me a lot of shame, like even 13, 14 years after the fact. And, you know, again, I, I guess there's a maturity factor in that when you were getting into poker, you were not even in the same solar system as me. Is it related to maturity? I'm sure as a you know 55 year old versus a 19 year old i don't know i i feel a lot of regret about getting angry getting being annoying coming after people that i wish i wouldn't have done and for the listener like just don't do it you know it's easy to it's easy to do that it's easy to get in a competitive environment want to be an alpha and just yell at people or whatever just battle people for no reason that, that haven't done anything to you and learn from my lesson in Luckily, nowadays, I, I can't remember the last time I, you know, it's been at least 13 or 14 years since I've done that. But 
yeah, it was a, it was a part of the growth process that I, I, I don't love. But um, yeah, I think another another part of it too is poker. At least for me, when I walk into like a bar, I that's not my comfort zone. I don't know oh. what to do in a bar. <laughs> like I'm like, mm, okay, people are like <laughs> drinking and like there's strangers talking to each other, and I don't know. That's not really how I'm constructed. I just kind of sit somewhere by myself and like drink, right? Like the, it doesn't make sense to me. But poker, when I sit down at a table, it mm. makes sense. I understand mm. what's happening, and I sit down, I plug in, and like that's it. So I guess I guess what I'm really trying to say is that, that like the poker table makes sense to me, and mm. that's a that's a really yeah, it's a really strong feeling when you sit down and you enter a place that just makes sense, and you you're like, yeah, this is what I was made to do. Yeah, I, I I I really relate to everything you're saying, and also what what I what I think what you were describing in terms of acting out at any age, right? I mean, I've seen I mean, I've been really lucky as a woman in the game playing a lot of live poker. There've been two or three incidents, and one time I cried, but for the most part, people were very respectful to me. But I, when when you go off on some, for you know, I feel like you're really just you're really kind of just messing with your own your own mental game in that moment, like the Phil Ivey tradition of mom poker. And that's some, like also as a woman, poker gave me permission to be silent. Women are socialized into a lot of nurturance and caretaking and always just having to take care of men on every level. And so my poker my experience allowed me to just reinvent myself in terms of gender at a really deep level. But what I hear, what, what I was thinking as you were describing the act, out and and I would say if somebody think it has a potential to just put you in just uh, I practice detachment and indifference uh, when I play. So if one is yelling at someone or tapping the glass or battling like verbally or whatever, unless it's something really organic to how you play the game, I think it has a potential to take you completely off course in terms of your energy for that session. Oh, for and I'm sure. At the, I'm at the opposite spectrum because I. I have, um, I, I caught up very quickly, even though I started late. And part of the reason I caught up fast is because my, I think my, I don't, I, I use other language besides mental game. I use a language of mindfulness training and awareness training and stuff like that. Cause I think I need broader ideas. Cause what I do in terms of my quote mental game is advanced for my years. Um, and I feel like I caught up very quickly. So I practice detachment and indifference to every hand every hand and so i can't be if i'm yelling at someone i know you understand this but it doesn't allow me to stay in kind of a more indifferent sort of space like i take a break part of how i structure my game and i keep myself very um grounded in my play is that i take a break every 90 minutes religiously whether i'm winning or losing or whatever i get up i just get up so i get up (laughs) And then even if the dealer is in the middle of a hand, I get up and then my cards will be sitting there. And this is just a small example of, of detachment. But the players will be like, you know, miss, you have a hand. I'm like, oh, you know, I just walk away. You're absolutely right. And I think that I, I think that like taking a break every 90 minutes is a very intelligent thing to do. And just walking around the casino, get the blood flowing, standing up, stretching, all, all that stuff is very important when you're playing live poker. So speaking of the women in poker and all of that, and we said it's a very complicated issue. And, you know, this happened just like two or three weeks ago where I was looking at my podcast demographic and looking at like the splits between male and female and the age, the age ranges. And I realized that like 22% of my audience from 18 to 22 years old are female. 
and then it, it goes down a little and then it plummets. So from like 25 to 45, it's like two to 3%. And I, I was looking at it and I, I called my wife in the room because I was like, Oh my God, I see something. I'm mm-hmm. like, this is kids. <laughs> like this, this whole, this is like the child rearing years where females don't have a lot of time. They're raising children and that's a lot of energy. Um, and they, they don't have hobbies. Right. And that's, I think that is another barrier that's like there's just not enough time to pursue poker in earnest through those years if you have a family and if you have kids because mother raising the kids and then going to play poker at the end of the day probably isn't a very socially, uh, you know, conditioned and socially acceptable endeavor. Right. And the, and um, I've written about this a lot and studied it, and I'm thrilled that Poker Power is now doing a survey, and they're collecting all kinds of data for the present moment. I mean, I had guys who I played with in New York who had high-powered jobs, and they were lawyers, doctors and lawyers, and this and that and the other, and they had the luxury of coming to play poker for four or five hours at the end of their workday. That's because their wives were home taking care of the children. Exactly. So, yep. I mean, I think it's a question. I think there's a lot of – there's several moving parts here, and to your point in – child rearing involving financial resources it takes money to start a poker life mobility obviously women have nightmare stories about playing live there's at least several years ago when i did some of that research there was a much higher ratio of women playing online because they felt safer you know there's all all that too i think that consciousness is is starting to shift um and then the question of how you know women don't have culturally like you you guys like in high school like i know countless male poker players who like had that experience where they were in they were playing poker in high school they got together with their friends to drink beer and play cards i've never once heard a woman say that so yeah. culturally that was also an acceptable thing um it's a lot it's a whole like i it's a whole matrix of things yeah and it, it's a complicated issue and just the difference in life experience between male and female is so huge you know me telling you that I was terrified somebody's following me in the car. This is something that I'm just like gaining awareness of in present day. You know, my wife was telling me that like she leaves her work with keys between her fingers because like she's a like if somebody comes up on her, she's ready to bop them in the face with um, car keys. And that's something I've never experienced as a male, ever. Like, if I didn't have a lot of money on me, I would never be cautious about somebody following because why would they follow me, right? And what are they going to do? Why women are not in poker and the barriers to entry and all, it's a very complex issue where my life experience is not the same as a female and it, they're just very, very different. The barriers to entry question, I think, is also a fascinating one. And I, there are all these sociological kind of reasons and blah, 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 blah. And then there's also the question of, you know, Vanessa had written some years ago a really beautiful piece. Like when she was coming up, she was a woman wanting to play on male sports teams when she was like uh, grammar school or high school. And that was just like kind of who she was and, and how the resistance to her being that. But she was somebody that had the gift of aggression. And she just, women are not socialized into competition and aggression in the same ways. And that is changing because you have female sports leagues and young girls playing sports and all this kind of stuff. But also it begs the question of how poker is, is marketed, how it's, how it's taught. I've talked to more, I've been a consultant for poker brands for the last several years. And I've talked to at least one business owner of a training site and they have some understanding that women have different learning processes and, and are kind of absorbing the game different in different ways intellectually, but also the question of how poker is marketed 
and most poker brands are not marketing to women. So it's kind of like a chicken and egg question. People say, well, women are the next big market, which is what, you know, poker, poker power is not is interested in, in kind of taking women from poker into a stronger corporate life, which is great. But if women are the next big market, but no one really sees that to kind of put more women into the funnel, but poker brands are not marketing to women at all. They're very masculine in their color schemes. They're very masculine in their language. There's not um, poker power purposely did something kind of very feminine in terms of their logo and their color schemes. So there's a whole marketing question of how poker brands speak to women. I mean, if you listen, 99% of people, I'm guilty of it too. Poker hands are described. Villains are always are always the masculine pronoun. Um, even folks that I, I'm aware of who are very conscious people and who say that they have an awareness of this and they they want to make their content um, inviting to women are never using a feminine pronoun. And these are small things. But when a woman looks at a typical poker site, what are they seeing? They're seeing language of crushing and destroying and prevailing and killing. And it's a very <laughs> masculine lexicon, right? Yeah. It is. So, and is that, and again, in terms of somebody... Uh, I'm just, I will, I have the same goals, right? I, your money should be in my pocket, but I'm never going to use the lexicon of crushing and destroying and owning you. I just, I'm not interested in the lexicon. And I think I can get to that same point through my behaviors and through my consciousness and how I, all those things we've talked about, and I can get to the same point, but it and begs, you know, again, how are people, how are women how do women find the game? And I think Poker Power is 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 great in doing what they're doing as one and other women advocacy groups who are like fanning out across the nation, helping women feel like, no, this isn't just a cigar smoking back room of a saloon, which is how I always think of poker. I don't mind being in a community of men, even young men. Um, I just don't. I just I love the saloon possibilities. That's me. But how do other women feel comfortable in and feel? I've had young women say to me, oh, I don't really get it or I don't feel like I'd be good at it or whatever, whatever. I don't know. I, I, men don't really, I haven't met that many men that ever say that actually. And I think it takes people like Vanessa and it takes the type of personality like Anna Marquez, who was on the show a few weeks back where when Anna found out about poker, I, I asked her point blank, like, did you ever have any thought that like you were not going to be successful on this path? And she's like, no. Right. Like, and that's how I felt. And I think that like for the women in poker that succeed at a high level and have lots of success, they need to have whatever the bug that had me was. It's not a recreational stumbling into poker. Like a lot of, uh, you know, the, corporate world, businessmen, those type of people, like you said, everything's branded, marketed towards them, and they just kind of fall into poker. But, you know, for females specifically, it's like they need to be, they need to love it. It needs, they, it needs to resonate with them in a big way yeah. where they're going to pursue it. Um, and they have to, they're, they're the ones who take the action to put themselves in there. Whereas everybody else, the, the male side of the equation, they just kind of stumble into poker and, they just play, and it's like a thing that okay, yeah, let's just play. It might be fun. A rite might... of a rite, a rite of passage in some sense, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking that there's all kinds of cultures that have lots of women in them. My mother played a game called Pan, P A N, 
which is very big in Jewish communities around the country. And she, she and my dad played pan for 40 years and she played pan in Los Angeles casinos. Um, and then there's bridge and there's other, like other card playing, competitive card playing cultures that attract women, you know, except poker doesn't. So John, you've used neutralized flop leads in the past 24 hours, correct? Yeah. So I got the, basically the slide with all the info on it on Friday evening. And yesterday I played a session of, uh, 1KNL on ignition and played one particular pot that I remember where a fish just donks flop turn river into me and I ended up winning with a hand that I would have folded before looking at the slide but I ended up winning like a $400 pot instead and the course is $99 so <laughs> definitely paid for itself very very quickly and, and I think that'll be the case for even people that aren't playing as big as 510 no limit like I think this is a course that will very very quickly pay for itself given how how much more donking there is at lower stakes and i think one of the most common questions i see asked in the greatness village slack group is what do donks mean how do i deal with donk bets i, I think that's got to be like in the top three most frequently asked questions you you ought to feel very excited when somebody donks into you because some good things are about to happen you said like you probably don't need anyone to teach the course or like you can just look at the slide and, and learn all the info yourself i feel like you, Brad, will have to be there because I am i am almost sure, sure that anybody who looks at the slide won't believe it looking at what they're supposed to do and will have to confirm with you that like you didn't make a massive typo somewhere and that this is actually what they're supposed to do because it's pretty shocking the optimal way to deal with fish donking into you on the flop is. If you'd like to check out Neutralize Flop Leads so that you're never again confused when a fish leads into you in a single race pot, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash Nuffle. That's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash N-U-F-F-L-E. And now, back to the show. I'll say something that may be controversial. I don't know. Whatever. I'm going to say it. As an industry, poker does not have its shit together. And this is very obvious to me as a content creator, as somebody in the space, um, as a poker player, I realized that this industry, it doesn't have its act together. It's behind. Um, there's no innovation in poker. I'm guessing that things kind of fell apart after Black Friday. Uh, as the money stopped flowing in, things kind of were dialed way back. But like now, if you, if you have a customer service issue in an unregulated place, on any poker site, you're not going to get it answered. They're not going to get back to you. They don't care. And that's just what I find from this industry. It's like, they just don't care. Um, mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, we're going to do things our way and we're going to have horrible customer service. We're not going to innovate. We're not going to spread new games. We're not going to go after botters. We're not going to spend a lot of money on security and deal with it because you've got no other option. And that to me is, you know, Failing to market a brand towards females specifically is one, it's just one of the things that this industry gets very wrong. And I hope over time that we can do a better job of, you know, serving people. But yeah, it's just that's the reality, I think, of the present day poker landscape. And until things turn around, get regulated, there's more competition. I don't think it's going to change, unfortunately.
I totally agree with you. And I've been thinking about this, this a lot lately because people will post things, you know, on Twitter or whatever, how they've been screwed over by this or that platform or things and people are not servicing them. And I do think that the poker industry is, to your point, it's way behind, years behind the rest of the world in terms of business practices. I think it's changing slowly. And I think a couple of brands that I've had, you know, contact with that have, have excellent, outstanding customer service. And I shout them out because they do. Yeah, that's good. That's good. We should focus on the positive like when things when good things happen we should celebrate those as well on twitter like we should go to joey ingram talking about a good thing so that he retweets it so instead of just all the negative stuff but f- with that well, set up I'm, I'm gonna sorry yeah. go ahead no i'm just interested to see like i've checked in with myself like like again i get a lot of respect at the table but if i, I have a, a difficult moment in what playing live here in vegas i've checked myself about how to handle it and I have a number of scenarios and, you know, I've just thought about it. And I think it's casinos um, from what I've read. And I get the sense that I what mean, do you I'm mean by test a difficult this. moment? Like, say somebody just goes off on me or somebody insults me or somebody just just goes off on me. Yeah. Um, men don't like to lose money to women in general. They don't so like losing money. Happened, they, they really don't like losing money to men either. <laughs> I think right, they, but generally it gets somebody amplified. Loses, right. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. But I've just I've checked in with myself, and I think casinos are being starting to be more sensitive to how women are treated in the card rooms. And you know, we'll see. And hopefully, I won't have to test the theory. Um, yeah. It's good. I mean, I'm glad that they're gaining an awareness. Finally, it's not like it took a rocket scientist to figure this out. Like as it relates to casinos, like I mean, again, another another thing that gives me a lot of shame as it relates to my live poker career are the times that I didn't say something to people when they're being totally inappropriate and just jackasses. And I think I could have stood up and said something many, many times in the times that I don't. It's another thing that gives me, I feel a lot of regret and shame over, but yeah, I, I think I don't even know what I'm talking about now. I <laughs> lost my total, t- no, lost, lost my do. tangent, my train of thought. Where am I? What am I doing right now? I, I've intervened once or twice when things got weird for other people, and I just become a total Jewish mother in those moments. But I want the the table to feel just to have a serenity as much as possible. So if I can help, I try. Yeah, the situations I'm describing, there is no serenity possible. <laughs> no, I know. There was no serenity possible. Um, it's 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 uh you know stand up, do what's right, and even if it hurts you, even if it's uncomfortable just fucking do the right thing. And I think that like if people in poker did the right thing more often than not, like that would, again, we're a self-policing industry, right? This is how funny our industry is. Like when a cheating scandal goes down, the poker players are the ones who discover it, not even the platforms. How do you feel about going to a little bit of a lightning round before we, we wrap up here, Sasha? Sure. Where, where did we stop in your poker journey? You, you made it to Vegas. You were to immersed Vegas. in the culture. <laughs> and then COVID, what happened? And then COVID what happened came. No, okay. I moved to Vegas and three weeks. I just also want to say parenthetically, Brad, that just in terms of training and catching up and whatever, whatever, like I did the math recently. And for some reason, when before, again, when I was still in my poker fetus period, I started watching high stakes poker. Uh, I started streaming it. And I did the math and I think I've streamed close to 10,000 hours of high stakes poker over the last decade. And that's something that just kept calling to me and calling to me. What do you mean by streamed high stakes poker? You know, I would just go online and stream content that I'd already Oh, you you would watch it? I'd watch it. 
Okay, yeah. okay. You I've consume it. <laughs> okay. I've consumed, but I've consumed somewhere around 10,000 hours of high-stakes poker, like 1,000 hours a year, and I kind of went with that too, that attraction to when you were talking earlier about sort of that intense, the intense moneyness of a poker and a gaming life. And in those days, in the old days, there was like all those big wads of cash on the table. But I always just responded to that, the, the game at that level. And I've just gone with it. And I continue uh, almost every day of my life. I, will, I stream high stakes poker. Um, but that I walk, even though I wasn't playing online and I've absorbed and watched the best players in the world and studied and thought about those hands as if I were in that game. And that was one method for me of just learning and studying and absorbing the culture of the game, which I think is how you, you get good at something that was, that helped me, I think, catch up a little bit, even because I started so late and I just made that commitment. Yeah. It's, I mean, again, it goes to show like, this is your passion. This is what you love. This is what you're immersing yourself um, in. And I miss the days of all the cash. Those were fun days where you, somebody just had <laughs> the bricks, $30,000 in hundreds. There's a, there's a guy, he, his name's Shane. And in Vegas, he would just play with cash. Like he would have like four chips in front of him and like $30,000 in cash. So like every raise is like, he's just throwing hundreds everywhere. Um, ah, good times, good times when you could, you know, do, do some things that maybe are frowned upon in the world. Basically, if you're going to cash out back in those days, you're like, Oh, you want my seat? here's uh, $10,000 in chips. You want to hand me the cash? And okay, we got a transaction and then you leave. You basically avoid the cashier. Um, yeah, I mean, that's still, yeah, that still happens. I mean, maybe not with like bricks of like cash <laughs> or maybe it does in high stakes rooms. I don't know yet. I hope to find out. Okay, so lightning round. Lightning I got round. Lightning round. Okay. Uh, <laughs> if you could wave a magic wand, change one thing about poker, what would it be? Oh, goodness. Um some of what you were talking about just um how the game is how uh how inviting or not inviting the game is for women absolutely and something just kind of came to my mind i don't even know if it's going to make sense but i'm going to say it anyway there was this uh i believe his name is zimbardo who ran the stanford prison experiment mm -hmm. uh, and he has a thing that he calls deviant for a day and basically what he challenges people to do is write uh basically get a marker something you can wash off and just put a rectangle on your forehead for the day don't tell people why you're doing it you're not doing it for any reason you're just doing it right and basically his point was that that's a low stake thing to deal with right and, and that's a low stake thing that you can Go out in the world and experiment, and you're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. You're going to feel a little bit weird. But the point is that you're feeling uncomfortable and you're feeling weird with a small thing. Because when something happens and it's a big thing, when you need to stand up and do the right thing, if you're used to feeling uncomfortable by doing these low-stake type things, you're more likely to act when, you, when it's necessary to act. And that's just something that kind of stuck with me for a while now of like, okay, like let's do some weird things. Let's lay down in the middle of a Starbucks and for 15 seconds, not tell anybody what you're doing and just do it. Right. Something that is just off the wall, wacky, weird, makes you feel uncomfortable, but has low stakes. And if you do those things regularly, 
like you said, when the situation arises where somebody's uncomfortable at the poker table, you're much more likely to speak up in that moment um, than you would be because, you know, you're used to feeling uncomfortable. That's interesting. Yes. Yes, I agree. If you could gift all poker players one, maybe two, maybe three books to read, what would they be and why? Um, as I mentioned before, The Poker Face of Wall Street by Aaron Brown, which is just absolutely brilliant and talks, uh, just breaks down, just de delves into the culture of the game in such a unique way and um, just has modes of analysis about the game that I've never seen anyplace else. Um, he wrote it at least 10 years ago. The other book I adore, um, let me get the right, exact right title here. Um, which is, um, was written about 100 years ago called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. And it's a seminal text in trading. Um, it's seminal and it's famous. And, you know, I feel like you can read five trading books and know everything you need to know. Um, that's a book that I, I've gone through, marked up every almost every page, and then I circle back and I write out where the trading and poker overlap happen. And then I write out what I've learned from his trading experience, et cetera. Um, and the other one is Zen and the Art of Poker, which I think is a masterpiece. Yeah. Why? Why is Zen and the Art of Poker um, I think that there. I think that for me, the power, real power of poker has nothing to do with strategy and everything to do with, with um, being and awareness and mindset and mental game and a kind of how you enter the, the organism of a session I think that's more of, I think you can learn strategy and then you can learn math and you can learn odds and you can learn all that. But if you can't sort of be not only completely self-aware, but aware of people around you and be, feel like spokes on, be one spoke on that wheel of many spokes in that game, take in the data, take in the information, honor the people you're playing with. I think if you bring in your consciousness to that high of a level when you play, I think is a very powerful place from which to play. Absolutely. 1,000%. And poker is an emotional game, and poker is a pressure-filled game. And I have seen many, many people who think about poker in a high theoretical way. When they sit down at a poker table, it all falls apart, and <laughs> they don't even know how to cap their cards anymore. Um, so... Execution is way different than theory, and ultimately, if you can't execute, the theory doesn't matter. So really prioritizing the execution, being in the flow, being present, um, acknowledging your emotions, acknowledging how the pressure is impacting you. I think all of just gaining an awareness of all these things are you know, just something that you have to navigate in your poker journey because that's life, and we're human beings, and human beings really aren't built to be poker players professionally so wow that's a, a big field. sentence that's a gigantic sentence i love that sentence and i do want to just shout out to jason sue who's one of the newer writers um that i just love his book um and i know you're you're connected to jason etc uh I, I hate the book we hate we don't talk no about i know it. i know but i think i think it's important for players when players hear words like flow and you know whatever whatever i don't think it has to get goofy i think that you practice things you just you practice being in your body when you're playing i think you practice you know jason's getting at some of this tommy gets at a lot of it and tommy was writing about it whatever 15 20 years ago and i think you inhabit yourself in a particular way and, and that is a practicing it's a set of muscles mentally physically 
you know, I think poker is immersive and people say, oh, just don't tilt. Just, I mean, poke, tilt for me is a body-wide immersive experience. And I think you have to start there in terms of getting out from under it. It's in the same way people say, oh, don't tilt. Yeah, it's like saying one of your loved ones passes away and you go to the funeral home and you're like, yeah, don't feel sad. <laughs> don't feel sad about, like, you feel your emotions. They're your emotions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you can't just flip a switch and not feel them. It's not that simple. Right. Um, and yeah, like the way that I, I think about it, and maybe this helps the listener too, is like if you're watching a football game, right, and the quarterback takes a snap, rolls out to the right, throws a dart 40 yards downfield, hits a guy in, in you know a two-foot window, like is this person like actively thinking, in their, I'm going to take six steps to the right. Now I need to do this mathematical equation so that I can get this ball directly here no the dude reacts he does the things that he trains to do in the moment there's no thinking there's no like i need to do x y or z i need to throw this 40 yards at this angle to get the ball specifically right here um you're executing on your training and that's what poker should be and that that's what i think like being in the flow as it relates to playing poker means it's taking your training executing it and just being in the present moment and trusting yourself Um, okay. Sorry. Hi. <laughs> Sometimes I get excited and I just start talking and I end up a place that I, I don't know where it's I came good. from or where we ended. Um, if you could write a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. Oh, wow. That's a great question. What's it say? Um, Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ, is that your final answer? I would answer? say, <laughs> I would say, we're all. This is not original to me. I would say we're all poker schmucks. I, I, that is the most grounding thing that anyone has ever said to me, and I, I defer, I refer to it constantly because when I get nervous or I get intimidated or I feel like someone has this much more knowledge than me, uh, someone I really trust said to me, "We are all poker schmucks." that we're just sitting down and playing and, you know, grinding it out. And, um, that I just, that's what I love the idea. That that's a greatness bomb and (laughs) something I think about. And I'm now 17 years into my career as a poker player. And I don't even know if I, I've been having the thought lately that I don't know that I can quantify myself as a professional poker player because I haven't been playing poker professionally for like the last six months or so. But the more I research, the more I learn, the more data I look at, the more I think about strategies, the more I'm convinced that we all are awful at this game and there's so much more to discover and learn and uncover. And yeah, I think just... We are all poker schmucks. Like we, Hold we, on, well, I want to clarify this because it's an important word for me. Um, and schmuck in Yiddish means a lot of different things. But sure, um, for me, it's not. I don't agree with you that we're all bad at this game. Oh, you don't. That, you don't agree with that. I do not. I mean, when I say we're all poker schmucks, meaning that we are all just. It's just. A, it's just. We sit down to play poker, like you know, you go. You know, you. It doesn't have to be glorified. It doesn't have to be anything. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea that not that for me, I mean, I don't want to take your language. Away no, no, no. Not that we all suck at the game, but that if we stay curious about the game forever, I think it's also part of our success formula. 
um, and we stay humble. Like I say, when we're all poker schmucks, meaning it allows me not to give somebody power or not to feel like somebody has is smarter than me or any of that. That I just, it helps me to honor my own intellectual process and just to stay with myself. Yeah. That's what I mean. And that to stay curious and to stay humble. The humility factor for me is gigantic. And I think the people like they're, you know, Seidel, Bill Gelfon, countless others who've been interviewed and, and they say, and folks say to them, how do you, what, what's your magic formula? I mean, Seidel is so beautiful. He's like, you know, yeah, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I kind of, you know, I adjust and yeah, I adjust, you know, <laughs> and Phil Galpin had some beautiful quote years ago that was like, whatever, I don't know, I, I have no idea. And then recently Tom Dwan was in a hand on, on one of the Poker Go shows and he, he you know, he shoved uh, over somebody's raise and then he went, they folded to his shove and he went, God, I didn't know what to do. Like, this is Tom, right? He was like, I don't know, I didn't know what to do there, right? And I love that, like, we know nothing, kind of mostly every minute, we know nothing. <laughs> That's what I said. No, that's what I mean. We we all we all suck. (laughs) No, I don't think we suck. I just think there's so many moments where we just don't always know the exact right next step to take, and it makes it's the fundamental reason why the game is so challenging. And I think the fundamental reason why the game is so invigorating. Yeah, for sure. That that's what makes it so appealing is that it's this thing that's it's unconquerable um, because there's always so much more to learn and there's always so much more room to grow and. Like I tell people all the time, like watch Phil Galfon playing against Bill Perkins on Twitch and talking about his thought process, like record how many times he says, I don't know. It's hundreds and hundreds of times. Like, I think I should do this. I don't really know. I think I'm going to do that. Like, this is the mind of one of the greatest to ever play poker, not knowing what to do very, very often. And that's just the reality of this game is like, you don't know what to do very, very often. And you just have to trust yourself to do the best that you can uh, in the moment and then come back to it when you're done playing. But you, you have to accept there's no hard, cut and dry hard answers as it relates to the game of poker. Which I actually have to say that I think it's a, it's a weakness in the way content is delivered to the universe today because we are so now programmed to feel like there should be some one right answer. And I think yeah. that I am, I only improve in game flow. I only improve when I'm put into tough spots over and over and over and over and over again. And I don't think that's said enough. And I'm guilty of like, you know, going to Tommy or saying like, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or here's this hand or whatever, whatever. And there, it is such an organic process. And I think that people are not trained enough to really trust their own process in terms of how they're getting better. And I think it's a problem, right? Cause there's so much content directing people away from their own intuition. Yeah. And it, I'm telling you, there's a thing that triggers me, and I didn't realize that it was it triggered me until very recently. But it's the word "why" when it's a thing that is like easily Googleable. Is that a word, Googleable? Mm-hmm. Like you can look this up, right? Like why why do we do? I'm like, dude, put it in Google. Don't ask me. Like I'm a human being. Why are you taking my energy to answer this question that you could just answer on your own? Um, that drives me up the wall. Where it's like, have some autonomy. Have some like. Go get it, this. Figure this shit out on your own. Don't let me, don't try to make me hand you every single piece of the puzzle. Anyway, that's just a, um, another tangent that I just decided no, to go okay. down. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, there, this is a very, this is both the golden age of content and a kind of a weird age of content, I would say. It's hard so, too. It's like, both. You know, I, I make stuff for poker coaching and like, they'll be like, oh, let, you know, put out an easy webinar, like three, three tips 
yada, yada, yada with some like keywords. And like, man, when I think about three tips, like my mind explodes. Like, it's like, I don't know what one, like how, (laughs) because it's really hard to just say something that is just so cut and dry in the world of poker that applies across the board to every situation that Mm -hmm. like, I don't know how to like simplifying things. Honestly, when I can simplify something and explain it to people quickly, like that's actually a very, very powerful thing that I've invested hundreds of hours into thinking about to be able to transfer something simple to somebody else. Because in poker, it's very rare that one cut and dry thing applies across the board. And yeah, it's, it's just hard. Like, like I said, it, I don't know if everybody struggles with that as a content creator and as a teacher and course creator and a coach, but like, I really struggle in um, saying easy things <laughs> to do that will make your game better because it's that it's hard for me. I understand. Yeah, no, we can, I hear what you're saying about, about simplifying. I just, in terms of coaching, I want to make sure I say this because it's very important to me yeah. in terms of books that I read and coaches and all of those and content that I absorb and I absorbed a lot, like all of us, I think it's important to find environments, intellectual environments through content, through your coaching, where you are relating to the operating system of the coach. Every coach has a different operating system. There's, oh, there's not, sure. inf- there's not infinite numbers, but there's many. And when there are certain books I open and read and I feel relaxed and joyous and other books I open and read and I feel tense and I want to cry. So it's very important as we learn to find your, the stream of ideas. And there are several competing streams now out there that suit you. Which and is a good thing, right? It's good that it's there's a very good thing. It, it just, you, you, it's like, I don't, I think I happen to, yeah, I, the universe put three coaches in my life that were completely in like my, my, they were perfect for me in terms of their operating systems and how they taught the game. I was very lucky in that way. Yeah. I don't know where I would be if I hadn't, hadn't found them or they hadn't found me. And and I would say a hundred percent like that. That's another greatness bomb. And if anybody out there tries one of my courses, or private coaching with me and like I don't resonate with you find a new coach if you have a coach that doesn't resonate with you that doesn't make sense um that isn't a facilitator to you getting to where you need to be then find a new coach because you know it's very important that you find something that resonates with you specifically yeah and you you are very lucky finding Tommy I, I don't if there's a human being that, that Tommy can't Tommy can't resonate with, like I, I don't I don't know any human being that Tommy just can't impact. He's such a freaking amazing human. Yeah, he's ridiculous on the amazing scale. He's ridiculous. So yeah, he definitely yes. is, and I feel very very fortunate. And uh, yeah. All right. What what's your current big goal as it relates to poker? We're a few questions away. I, I've been thinking about your excellent title of your of your company, of your brand, Chasing Poker Greatness. And I've checked in with myself on that. And I was like, what does greatness mean for me? So in terms of my goal, um, I, I think I my greatness, I define greatness as feeling like in every session, I'm, I have a set of, mus- of intellectual muscles where I'm making excellent decisions 90% of the time. And wherever that takes me in terms of my poker trajectory and however high stakes I end up playing, which I have some serious ambition in those stakes. What, um, what stakes? What's your ambition? Let's put it out there. 
I, I, I can't. Why not? You can't, you can't put it out there? I, just because I don't know how I'm going to get it fucking bankroll. Hey, if you can't put it out, how are you going to make no, it if you can't, can't no, put it out there? No, it's like, no, because no, I, I, I mean, it was very sweet. Somebody recently on one of the older streams, like one a stream from 10 years ago, a really famous player, they, they said like, they, they, they like went to like a 100, 200, or 200, 400 game with like $8,000 or something. And that's like all they had, or they, they had to borrow. Anyway, you know, they're, men, men go towards something with only like 20% of credential and women have to make sure they have 110% of the credential, right? So a man is having to like borrow half of a bankroll for a, a hundred thousand dollar buying without any shame about it. They're like, oh yeah, I did. I only had 50,000. So I borrowed or like got staked for the other 50,000. Like women would be like, oh my God, that's, there's no way. Like I have to have like $500,000 in the bank. You know, that's the big gender, you know, split right there. So, um, I would say there's there's a lot of males that don't feel comfortable asking for 100k too. I no, think was, so. Yeah, no, no, I understand that. I just like. Uh, yeah, I know yeah. you. You got to be over like you. You have to feel way overqualified. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but yeah, the greatness for me is really whatever stakes I end up playing. Uh, I, I definitely, I just want to feel not going to get it out of you, huh? We'll I just... feel like. <laughs> like I want to feel great to myself and that seems sort of goofy, but you know, but I know you understand how that feels where you just like, you're like, yes, like I crushed that one decision, you know, <laughs> and then you're just like, you just want to go tell somebody like how amazing you are because you got the decision right, you know, or you feel like you did. We're all sick. We're just sick, sick, sick. Well, we we like playing poker and making yeah. good decisions is what makes a good poker player. So you ought to be excited when you make great decisions. That's true. What's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Um, <clears throat> I recently finished a first novel. I'm, I have a life as a fiction writer in addition to my poker life <laughs> and my corporate life. I've been a little busy in my mid my middle age. Um, I recently finished it. It took me years and um, trying to get that, bring that into the world. And it's, I writing a novel is like life changing. It's like having three babies. So I'm, I'm, uh, fingers crossed on just, um, making all that real. So. Cool. Congratulations Thank on you. wrapping it up and best of luck. I'm, I, I'm sure that through your career, you've, you've probably made a fair number of contacts and yeah. hopefully, yeah, uh, I'll be happy. Does it have a title? What's it about? Like, is it, Related to poker, or just a it's separate. It's not related thing? to poker at all. It's 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 uh, it's not historical fiction, but it spans about seventy five years on the Lower East Side and starts in nineteen ten. So it's very much um, a story of um, survival and regular people and poverty and community and um, orphans and a lot of things that have happened in New York. I really I lived in the, the Lower East Side for thirty years, and I, I this book just literally. They kind of emerged out of me when I was in graduate school. And then it took me years to realize it was a very ambitious first novel. So um, I'm proud of it. And uh, I don't think any book like it exists about that neighborhood. So we'll say fingers crossed. Congratulations. That's uh, that's a great, great thing to wrap up. Um, and final question, mm -hmm. where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Well, thanks. First of all, I, I want to say that I've recently um, changed my name. So um, my name, my legal name is now Sasha. Um, 
my pen name up to this point was Eileen Sutton. So my poker book, which is called the Total Poker Manual, um, which is an absolutely gorgeous text visually. There's nothing like it in poker literature visually. Um, and um, it's a great book for beginners and holds beginners' hands. Um, so my, my blog and article work through Redship and through Poker News is in my pen name, my old pen name, which is Eileen Sutton. Um, my, I am on Twitter at Poker for Girls. And I, it's going to be a little confusing, I guess, for some folks for a little bit of time. They're going to see both of my names there as Sasha Eileen Sutton. And um, my website is Sutton Stories, S-U-T-T-O-N-S-T-O-R-I-E-S.com. And I'm extremely responsive. And folks can write to me through the site. And folks can certainly reach me anytime through Twitter. And I have a very active Twitter life, um, poker life, and writing life there. Awesome. Sasha, thank you very much for your time and your energy. It's been an absolute pleasure. would love to have you back again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.